Well, I get to stand and walk around, so, um, so the, the, the cold doesn't bug me as much. But I understand if some of you are starting to get up and do some jumping jacks, I get it. I understand, um, especially when your toes start to go numb and those types of things. So, so feel free if you need to uh, get up and walk a little bit, move a little bit. I'm not going to hold that against you or anything. So, um, It is cold. Uh, I talked to the principal and just said, hey, is there a way to turn on the heat? She's like, I wish. Um, okay, well, uh, but you, I don't know if you know, Nampa kind of had um, this a cyber attack here recently. They just this summer, at least at this school, completely changed their whole entire HVAC system. It's all computerized, and therefore uh, they're trying, trying to get it up uh, back in, uh, I guess, online and working, and they've had issues. So uh, it doesn't just affect us, it affects the whole school, I guess. So you could be praying for the school, because I imagine... The gym's not so bad if you have a bunch of kids running around, but I'm not sure how the rest of the school is working. So uh, hopefully we'll get those, those things worked out. So thank you for coming and shivering along with us. Uh, I can't tell you for sure next week that we'll have heat, so please come back. Bring a blanket if you want to, and, um, and that's all right. We'll, we'll make it work. So uh, back in January, we set some goals for 2019, and I want to go back to a little bit and just kind of remind us, and there's a reason for it. We're in October now. And because we're in October now, we have gone through 75% of the year, three-quarters of the year, right? I did my math right. So we've got 25% of the year left. That's crazy to think. We're that far into 2019. 2020 is just around the corner. And so I went back and started looking at my notes, uh, the first message I gave back in January. I remember that there were some, some goals that we set. And one of the things we really wanted to focus on in 2019 was becoming closer as a church, as a church family. As a, as a young church and a church that sets up and does outreach events and those types of things, we get to do a lot of things as a church. We've done service projects together. We've done life groups, all those types of things. And so oftentimes we do things together. And sometimes when we do many things, we have a checklist and we begin to go through that checklist and we forget that life's about relationships. And so we really want to take some time and focus on that. And, and of course, a key part of that for us is life groups. Life groups are extremely important. Encourage people to get into life groups. We find that that is one of the best ways to get people plugged into um, to the church, to life of the church, other groups in the church. Uh, and so, again, encourage people to do that. The second thing we pointed out is that cross generational interaction is really important. Uh, over the years, what happens in churches is we begin to get groups, and we have a younger group and an older group and a middle-aged group, and then we have the marrieds over here and the non-marrieds over here, and then we have the parents over here and, you know, the grandparents over here, and we start to break up all these different groups. But it's really important as a church to be cross-generational. And, and so we talked about that, and, and, and sometimes there's, you know, this idea over here, the older generation looks at the younger generation and says, well, they don't want anything to do with us. The younger generation looks at the older generation and says, they don't want anything to do with us. And that's not really true. We've got to have some cross-generational interaction. I think that's really healthy. And so I encourage you guys to, to reach out. Hopefully that's been happening to some extent where you're reaching out to one another and hopefully doing that. We still have those groups that meet uh, and maybe give you some peers to, to be discipled with and walk through and all those types of things, but, but also want to encourage that cross-generational interaction. So that was one of the things we talked about, and I think we've seen some of that this, this year. And then the last thing was opening homes. And so I don't know, I challenged you uh, 
a while back to say, you know, would you open your home and invite at least two different people, two different families over to your home? Uh, and so I don't know if you've done that, but I wanted to remind you of that because we're coming close to the end of the year. So you're like, man, I haven't done that, but I wanted to. Well, you only got three months left, so, so get with it. Uh, but really, that's, that's an opportunity. There's, uh, there's sometimes, as people go through church, and I'm going to call it, it's a maturity issue, okay? So um, we, we go through church at times, and we say, well, nobody's ever invited me over to their house. And my question is, well, why are you concerned about that when you should be concerned about whether or not you've invited people over to your house? We, we, we want to point out to everybody else, hey, you, you aren't doing your part. And really the question ought to be, well, what about you and your home? And some people come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, my home's too small. I can't do it. I don't have enough money or things like that to, you know, host a, a... And I get those. But we should always be asking the question, am I being hospitable? And not pointing out going, well, they're not hospitable. So that's a maturity thing. As we come closer to Christ, I think we're, we're challenged to, to say, how can I serve, not how can I be served? And I think that's, that's something we want to continue to, to foster and grow and those types of things. It's something I need to continue to grow in. So it's not just pointing the finger at you guys. I need to work on that as well. And then the other thing is when you get invited, go. Um, you know, it's funny we have to say that. But, you know, if somebody's going to go out of their way and invite you to their home, don't come up with 20 reasons why you can't go. Um, go. You know, and and enjoy the time you get to be with that person. So, so those are some things uh, just to be reminding you of as as we continue through 2019. As we go into 2020, we're going to focus uh, a little bit more on some other things, but uh, those are kind of in the works right now. So, I just want to remind you of 2019. Uh, we are in October, so you've begun to see some of the the harvest uh, the harvest decorations up. You know, you've got. You've got corn out there, uh, you've got pumpkins out there, and you've got scarecrows. Even though scarecrows are typically used in the spring, people use scarecrows for fall decorations. So uh, I have a question for you. Why do scarecrows keep getting promotions? Because they're outstanding in their field. Okay, so I'm glad you laughed. I thought that was a classic one. All right, okay. All right. Well, I told that to my kids, and they just rolled their eyes. They're like, such a dad joke. In fact, as soon as I brought it up, I looked at them, and they're like, oh, I can't believe he's going to do this. <laughs> they are. They're outstanding in their field. Well, Esther was outstanding in her field, too, right? Haman was not. And, and that's what we're going to be taking a look at as we go forward into Esther chapter 5. So I thought uh, Luke did a great job in Esther 4, bringing uh, out the fact that Esther was courageous. She had a great amount of fear, but uh, she went into a situation and, and began to go into that situation, and we go into chapter 5 and see what she did here. But, but she goes into it, even, even though she had fear. I mean, fear's still there, right? That emotion and that thought and that second guessing, it's all still there. But her courage was greater than that fear. And so she walks in and talks to the king. And so that's what we're going to take a look at. The humble approach. As you look at Esther, you're going to see that, that Esther herself uh, had great courage. And for us, as we come before, before any situation, we ought to come with humility. Humility that God is God 
Humility that, that Christ is our Lord and Savior and that we're serving Him in, in every circumstance. Now, I don't think we do that necessarily. We don't even think about that at times. But we are His children, and as His children, we ought to represent Him in, in every situation, every circumstance. So we need to have a humble approach in life, and we're going to take a look at that and, and check out Esther and then see the opposite, which is Haman, who is the arrogant fool. And that's really the picture that you see as you go through um, Let's look at the humble servant. Oops, sorry. I hit the wrong button. Lights. Ooh, maybe they'll come back on. Everybody, just disappear real quiet. Not quick. And that'd be funny. Everybody leaves, and I look up. Hey, there's nobody here. All right, the humble servant. Here we are, Esther chapter 5, 1 through 8. So let's introduce you to this humble servant. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. So, so she comes in through the, the big doors into the courtyard, and he's there, and he's looking in that direction. And that's what he's telling us here. So basically, as soon as she comes into the entrance, as soon as she comes in this courtyard, he sees her. And he has a decision to make right away. And chapter 4 tells us that. Chapter 4 reminds us that she could not come into the king's presence unless he summoned her. And if she chooses to go into his presence, he has to take his scepter and lower his scepter. If he doesn't, it's kind of like one of those off-with-the-head situations. Okay? So she comes in, sees him right away. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. There's several places in Scripture where it talks about people gaining favor. One thing I would challenge you with is as you're going through life, if you have to walk into a difficult situation, and if there's somebody who has authority over you, like a government official, a judge, or something like that, pray for favor. God, can I have favor in that person's eyes? You see it mentioned several times in Scripture, this person gained favor in so-and-so's eyes. And here you see it here. That's an okay prayer. It's a good prayer. I've prayed it before. I've gone to situations where I was scared to go and talk to some kind of an official. And, and I, on the way, I'm like, God, I don't want to go do this. Um, please give me favor. And there's some things that happen. I'm like, wow, that was a, a miracle. That was God's grace or providence or one of those types of things. So she gained favor in his eyes. The king then extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So she walks to the courtyard, touches the tip of the scepter, and then the king says, what is it, Queen Esther? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. Now, that's most likely um, a form of speech called hyperbole, uh, exaggeration. It's, it's saying, you know, I'm basically going to grant you what you want, within reason. Um, half the kingdom is a way that they might have said that. And so, so that's what the king replies. Go ahead, make your request here. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. Now remember in chapter 4, Mordecai comes and says, Queen Esther, you might be here for such a time as this, to go there and talk to the king about the Jews and the fact that Haman wants to destroy and wipe out the Jews. So, so maybe God has put you here for such a time as this to go and make a request about it. So what does she do? She comes in and says, hey, king, will you come to dinner? Uh, there's a couple reasons why, and it doesn't tell us why she had this approach. One, it could have been as she, she at least had uh, the courage to step through the door 
But just because she had the courage to step through the door, she didn't go all the way and make the request right away. That's one possibility. And so she says, how about a, how about a meal together? And then we'll resume this conversation. Uh, another thought is that she just walked in and she said, you know what? I know how to get to the king's heart. And that's through food, right? Uh, and that's kind of a saying that people have said. How do you get to a man's heart? Through food. Uh, maybe she's living that out here. She knew that. I'll have a banquet. He'll have a little bit to drink. He'll have something to eat. And then I'll make a request. So it could very well be that. The other thing is he, she brings in Haman. So Haman wasn't here at this point. And, and for whatever reason, she wanted to get a situation where Haman would be there. Maybe so that she could talk to both King and Haman at the same time and not say, well, the king have to say, well, let me go check with Haman about that and go back and forth. Like, let's just do it all together. And so maybe she was just setting that up so that there would be both of them together. Whatever the reason is, it doesn't tell us. Those are, that's just speculation, but at least a couple options out there as to why she decided to go with a banquet instead. So the king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. He's excited about this. Hasn't seen her for 30 days, we're told in chapter 4, right? Now she comes in, she wants to have a banquet together. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and while drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you want, even the half kingdom will be done. So again, he says the same thing, go ahead and make that request. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request, if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to banquet, I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. So she puts it off onto another one. So this is like her second attempt to approach the king with this. And she says, hey, will you come back to a banquet tomorrow? Again, speculation can be made as to why she was doing this. Uh, We don't really know, but we do know that it took at least two banquets for her to get to the point where she said, yes, this is what my request would be. So as she comes in, and this is kind of the point I want to make, as Esther comes in to approach the king, she doesn't do it with with this bold, courageous arrogance. Like, hey, listen, I'm the queen and I'm a Jew and you need to listen to me. Instead, she comes to the king with some fear and respect of his position. And you might even say, tries to butter him up a little bit. But but, but she comes saying, hey, I I want to serve you. And as I serve you, I want to earn and build some respect. And no, maybe even try to say, you know what, this is, this is a difficult thing to ask. But I want you to know that, that I'm doing it because I have good reason. And so she's, in a way, communicating with him that she's going to take her time, she's going to be wise and patient and approach the king with respect and humility. That's quite opposite of Haman, who we see in this passage, is the arrogant fool. Okay? So I think what, what we see in chapter 5 is this contrast between Esther and Haman. Esther comes to the king to plea for Israel and to ask that he would not destroy the Jews. Haman comes to the king later in chapter 6 to ask that the king would kill Mordecai. Okay, so you see that contrast here between the two. So let's read a little bit more about Haman. 
starting with verse 9, it says this, that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits, okay? Because he had just been invited to go to this banquet with the queen. I mean, how, how great is that? But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. So here he is, he's coming off this high, everything's going great, the king likes me, the queen likes me, man, I must be doing something good. He walks by some guy, a Jew that he has no respect for, but he's upset because Mordecai doesn't bow down or give him praise or respect him the way he wants. So he becomes angry, filled with rage, but he's able to control it. That's what it goes on to tell us. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife's dress uh, to join him. And when Haman described for them his glorious wealth and many sons, he told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials at the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she'd prepared. Now, maybe that tells us a little bit why Queen Esther did this, because she wanted to make Esther, Haman feel special before she squashed him. That happens later. Um, so, so she invited him, and, and so he goes on, he says, I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. So all of this, this great, look, look at my life, look at how wonderful it is. I'm, I'm second in control of the kingdom. The queen is inviting me to banquets. Everything is great. I have wealth. I have sons. I, it's just all is good. But there's this one guy. So if you were to put those things on a scale, clearly all that he had just talked about, all that he has is far weightier than one guy, Mordecai, and yet it's Mordecai that's bothering him. It's the arrogant fool. His wife, Zeresh, and all the friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Now, there's some speculation here. Maybe it was on top of a tower. Maybe it was actually 75 feet tall, Gallo. And um, that's roughly about, you know, when you go drive down the, the road, you see the power poles about twice what a, what a wood power pole would be, somewhere in there. It's pretty, pretty tall, 75 feet. And the idea is that, you know, he would be up in the air and people would be able to, to see. Look, the spectacle. So, as the king uh, asked the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it, then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. So there's there's our contrast. There's our story. We've got uh, Esther comes in before the king with a humble heart, serving him. I'm going to make some banquets or a couple banquets for you. I'm going to make this request. I respect your position. I respect you as king. And then you have on the other side, really Haman, who thinks of himself as a king in some sense. I went out there. Mordecai should have fell down and worshiped me. And, and I should be able to walk into the king and tell him, you know what? This is what you need to do to this guy, Mordecai, who I can't stand. We need to wipe him off the face of the earth. Let's kill him. This, this, is, this is the contrast between the two. The Proverbs 6, I want to show you this because I think this is a great description of, of Haman. 
and who He is. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to Him. In other words, God really hates these seven things. He's drawn attention to it, okay? Here's what He has to say. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Does Haman fit into that category? A heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Seven things that God hates. And you see in Haman's life all those things being lived out here. And so it brings us to, I think, this this point, a big idea for the day, that God always prefers humility over arrogance. Okay, there's not a question about it. It's not a difficult point to make. I think it's just one we have to be reminded of. Because we can start with a little bit of pride, and our pride can grow into arrogance. God always prefers humility over arrogance. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God was honored with Esther and what she did. And He's honored when we live out our lives with humility. So I want to spend just kind of the, the finishing um, time here looking at three marks of humility as a way for us to reflect on this and ask the question, how are we living a humble life today? several years after, after Esther. We know Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. Esther did not. Okay, she was living with her knowledge of the law of Moses and the history over the Jewish people. We know where Christ is. And so we bring Christ into our picture today, and we follow Him and who He is. And so really the first mark, and really it's hard to boil it down to three marks. You could come up with ten marks, really. Um, but I'm going to boil it down to three today. So the first one is that humility is marked by genuine Christ-like change. And you see this in Colossians. Verse 18, I'm going to pick up a verse 20 here. Uh, you can go back to 18 if you'd like to, but, but look at this. Humility is marked by genuine Christ-like change. Verse 20, it starts and says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. When he says that, He's really saying, okay, there's so many things out there that pull us away from God. Satan's goal in your life is not to make you a devil worshiper. Satan's goal in your life is not to make you the next Hitler or somebody wicked and evil like that. Satan's goal is to pull your eyes off of God. And he will put all kinds of distractions in your way. Those are the elemental spiritual forces of this world that will put every kind of distraction. He knows your personality. He knows your weaknesses, and he will target those things, right? And some of you can say, yes, I know that firsthand. So he says, since you died with Christ, so he's talking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have acknowledged that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for their sins. So since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Now, the Jews were going around at that time. Remember, there's a little bit of a difference because Christ had come, so this is where the story is different than Esther's. Christ had come and said, believe in me, not in all these rules to save you. Believe in what Christ has done. Believe in His death, burial, and resurrection. So, so it's not about these these do's and don'ts to bring you to uh, faith or a relationship with God. It's really about believing in Christ. And then when we believe in Christ, we follow Him, 
and we do the do's and don'ts, we follow, we submit to Him because we love Him and we care for Him. And we want to be an example for others as well. So he says, if you're relying on the rules, a checklist to save you, well, that's wrong. These rules, which have, have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. And, and we as people like that. Religious leaders love that. Let's make a list of things for you to do, right? It's hard when you just say, follow Christ. Well, how do I know Christ? Well, be in His Word. Be in communion with Him. Pray. Understand who He is. Be in the body of Christ together in the church so you can bounce those things off each other and know how to follow Him. Such regulations, the do's and the don'ts, the list of things to do, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility. Okay, there's this idea of humility. It's false humility. Hey, I can make myself look humble and their harsh treatment of the body, and so people will do that. They might even hurt themselves or deny certain things, deny certain foods. They would deny bacon. Can you believe it? <laughs> Praise God that He died so we have bacon. That's a minor thing. But, but they would deny certain things. But look at what he says there at the end. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So a list of do's and don'ts will help you look good on the outside, but on the inside you might be dying. So he says, real humble life takes and follows Christ, and that is what helps us with the indulgences of this life, where we want to honor Him with how we live our lives. Here's another way to think about it. And this is pretty simplistic, so it's a little more complicated than this, but I think it helps me a little bit. After the service, if I were to say to you or anybody here were to say, hey, come over to my house, I'd love to have a meal with you or something. You say, okay, great, I'll, I'll, I'll go to your home and we'll do that. There's two ways for you to get there. You've never been to that person's house before. They say, well, you can follow me. Follow me home. And then you have a choice. You can say, yes, I'll follow you, or... You could do like I do sometimes and say, well, I'm not sure when we'll leave or I might need to stop at a store and grab something on the way. Just give me your address. I'll type it in my phone and I'll go that way. Have you ever done that? Yeah, we have. I mean, that's pretty common, right? Well, this is kind of the way salvation works in a way. Jesus says, here, follow me to God the Father. And we say, well, Jesus, that's nice, but i got a few other things to do first. So just tell me how to get there. Just give me some directions. I'll type it in my phone, and we'll see what comes up. And we've got a list of all the turns and the do's and the don'ts and along the way, right? And Jesus is saying, no, just follow me. Trust me. This is how you get there. By, by nature, especially in our culture, we are independent, we're individualistic, we want to do our thing our way. And when, when God tells us we need to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, we resist. But He tells us we need to have a relationship with Him. And the reason we do things the way we do things is because we love Him. So, I'll go back to my earlier days when I was first really developing and growing in my walk with Christ. And, and it's a, a conviction of mine, but it's not a law. And that conviction was I need to be in God's Word. So every night 
around 8.30 or 9, I spent about an hour going through Scripture. I was marking things up. I was comparing notes, and I was growing a lot in my faith and understanding of God and His Word. Now, that's not something I can say you have to do. I can say it's a good thing to do, but you don't have to do it to be saved. I did it because I want to know Christ. I want to know what His Word has to say. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to see Him on those pages living out life so I can learn from it and honor Him more. As time goes by, I love, I love music. I like listening to music. Uh, God convicted me. Again, it's a personal conviction, but He convicted me. You need to listen to music that honors me. So I decided to make that choice and get rid of music that isn't honoring to Him and listen to music that honors Him. That was a conviction on, on my part. And, and, and I think that was God saying, are you going to follow me through this? For me personally. And so there are times in life where those convictions come to the surface. I say, I'm going to do this because I believe it's what God wants me to do. To show that I love and honor Him. There's a lot of things. Uh, Rebecca and I are married. We made that commitment a long time ago to be married, 20 years ago. Um, there's a lot of things I don't have to do as a husband to stay married, Right? but I'm going to do them because I love her and care for her. We became children of God, and there's a lot of things we don't have to do in order to keep being a child of God because we know it's already been done for us through Christ, but we do it because we love Him and honor Him. So humility, go back to that point, humility is marked by genuine Christ-like change in our lives. Okay, that's the first one. Secondly, humility is marked by tearful, passionate, life-sacrificial sharing of the gospel. Okay, I put a lot of words in there for you. Okay. Is marked by tearful, passionate, life-sacrificial sharing of the gospel. Let's take a look at this passage. I'll bring that back if you're writing it down, just in case you are. Uh, But look at the passage, Acts 20. This is Paul speaking and his others that he's going with this missionary journey. It says, when they, the missionaries, arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot on the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly. Okay, now you can say that all you want, right? I've done this humbly. But he, he shows us how he's done it humbly, okay? With many tears, crying for people, in tears for people. It says, I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. So many were after him, wanting to, to, to kill him, put him in jail, stone him, all those types of things. You can read about it all throughout the book of Acts. But he says, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. He was passionate he was tearful, and he was living a sacrificial life as he shares the gospel. I'd like to be more like that. I'd like that to be kind of my, my testimony. So, uh, it's hunting season, and I get asked uh, oftentimes as hunting season comes up, are you hunting this year? Are you going out, you know, doing some hunting? And I, I haven't really been hunting. I've been with people that hunt, but I've Personally, I've never shot an animal, and there's a reason why. So I'm going to be a little vulnerable, and you guys can, you men out there can call me wimps if you want. I don't like shooting animals. I, I don't, 
It just for whatever reason. And I'm not putting down anybody who does. If you are a hunter, great. I like eating meat, okay? <laughs> I just don't like watching the animal get shot and die. So we're out. I'm out with a friend, a good friend of mine. And, and here we are. I've got this buck. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's nice. Look at that buck. You know, it's eating. And, and all of a sudden, the buck falls on the ground. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem nice, right? And there's a little tear in my eye. Like, uh, there's, you know, that, that poor, helpless, defenseless animal just died. So there you go. You can call me a wimp if you'd like. I don't really like hunting that much from that point of view. I like going to the butcher and picking up my beef. <laughs> um, but what, what, what strikes me here is that Paul isn't talking about shedding tears for animals that are dying. He's talking about shedding tears for people who are dying without the gospel of Christ. And I have to, to admit to you, I'm a little convicted when I think about it that way. That I'd shed a tear for an animal, but I've got neighbors around me, I've got friends around me, I've got people around me that don't know Christ. Am I shedding tears for them? Humility is marked by tearful passionate. Am I pursuing relationships so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I, am I sacrificial in my sharing of the gospel? Am I going to be like Esther and walk through those doors into a conversation? I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to walk through those doors anyhow and share and see what happens. Maybe, maybe all I got to do is invite them over to the house for a banquet, invite them over for a meal. That'd be all right. See where it goes. Maybe there's a conversation that comes up from it. Maybe there's an opportunity there to share the gospel. We talk about that in our Pi Cube. Pray, invest, invite, involve. You pray for the people that you're reaching to, reaching out to. You invest in communication, talking with them, uh, texting them. You know, if if they're a neighbor, you go over when you see them outside, have a conversation, and then you invite. And one of those ways you can invite people is just to a meal. Spend a little more time with them, and then somewhere along the way, you invite them to have a conversation about your faith. So are, are we doing that? Are we doing that? So we can share the gospel. That's, that's a mark of humility. And then the last mark here. Humility is marked by a good reputation. Proverbs 15.33, it says, Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. So humility comes. If somebody is being honored for their humble position, if somebody is being honored and they're respected, then you know that that person has uh, humility in their life. We remember Esther. The story of Esther is great. People say, I want to be like Esther. Who wants to be like Haman? We don't want to be like the arrogant fool. So people have respect for those who show humility. I think that's a great mark of what a humble person is. Well, those are the three marks, if you like, uh, if you haven't written them down, then they are real quickly. Again, three marks of true humility. Um, again, you can add several more in there. The Bible talks a lot about humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, First Peter 5, that at due, to, at his due time, he'll raise you up. Humble yourself under him. Follow him. That's kind of that genuine Christ-like change where you give your life to him. Second one, tearful, passionate, life-sacrificial sharing of the gospel. And the third is to have a good reputation. Um, that's, that's when you see humility being played out.
God always prefers humility over arrogance. So as we come to a close and we have a response, I just have a couple things for you to think through. Esther put her life on the line to save the Jewish people, and we hold her in high regard for it. Considering that piece of information, come up with a challenge for yourself. I'll leave it out there for you. I think that's that's a good enough um, illustration there that you could probably step back and go, hmm, how am I doing in that area? How am I doing with courage? We were challenged with that last week as Luke spoke and then challenged with us that point again. How do you need to grow in that? How, How can, like I say, there's a lot of questions. And then the second one there is read, reread, and memorize, if you can, or like Romans 10, 14 to 15. So if you want to read it every day, you, uh, three to four times a day, print it out, stick it on a mirror somewhere, have it in your Bible as a notification that pops up three or four times a day, here's what it has to say. You could do it in your own translation if you like. It says, then how then can they call on him they have not believed in, and how can they believe without hearing about him, and how can they hear without a preacher? And you go, oh, I'm not a preacher. Uh, the point here in this passage is someone needs to go out and preach and teach the gospel. You don't have to have the title of a preacher. You just need to go out and speak it. It says, how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Most people don't think feet are beautiful, but God does when we bring good news to people. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, yeah, there's a cheer. woo Think through that verse, read that verse, reread it, stick it in your mind, memorize it if you can, and be reminded that your feet are beautiful when you bring good news to people in God's eyes. And and that's a great thing. Just like Esther, who stood for the Jewish people, we need to stand for people and give them the gospel. So think about those things as we close.